Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacist to care. And good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. I'll be your host for the next hour. Talking uh, Medical Mondays, we look at uh, all the different systems in the body, we look at specific issues, but one thing is consistent in terms of the topics and the themes that we that we talk about here on the morning uh, on uh, Medical Monday. It's uh, we always have the best level specialists in studio to talk to us. So uh, this morning we're going to be talking about a tiny little gland in your body called the thyroid. Okay, it's not teeny tiny, but it's pretty small. And um you know, what happens when the when things with the thyroid go wrong? What is the what what is the thyroid responsible for? Uh, also going to be looking at the endocrine the endocrine system and adrenal fatigue. You know, today you meet people and every second person is telling you, "Oh, I'm never mind the gluten intolerance. I'm no longer gluten intolerant, but today I've got uh, endocrine. You know, I mean, I've got uh, adrenal fatigue. So, is it something real? Is it something that's not real? Uh, Going to be speaking to our expert, and uh, on that note, I want to welcome Dr. Brad Merwitz, and uh, he he practices as Netcare Mill Park and the Park Lane Hospitals. And uh, thank you so much for coming in. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right, so uh, let's just talk about when somebody says that uh, the endocrine system, what does that encompass? So the endocrine system consists of the the organs that produce the various hormones in the body. Um, There are a number of these organs or glands, uh, pituitary, thyroid, adrenals, the pancreas is involved in the endocrine system as well. And so all these hormones function together to, uh, I often describe it as an orchestra in the body. The pituitary is the, the conductor. <laughs> and uh, when everything functions well, it's music. When not, it can be disastrous. Okay, so what did you say is the the, the, the conductor? The pituitary gland. The pituitary, and that's it's inside the brain. That's correct. It's about the size of a piece. It's between your eyes. And that's, that gives an output through hormones, chemical messengers, that will then dictate what the other glands in the body do. Okay. Where is the thyroid? Because that seems to be the most troublesome out of all the different glands. So the thyroid, it's a butterfly-shaped gland. It sits on your neck. Um, You can feel often, you can feel the cartilages in your neck over there. And just in front of them sits the thyroid gland, and it straddles the neck and wraps around it, around your larynx, just below. And um, it's about 20 grams or so under normal circumstances. There are two lobes to the thyroid, a left lobe, a right lobe, and then an isthmus in the middle, or an intermediate lobe. And it's concerned primarily with the metabolic function of the body in terms of metabolic rate, how fast or slow the body functions. So you can imagine when there's a problem, excess thyroid hormone, everything speeds up, and when there's a deficiency, everything slows down. Okay. When people are saying, well, you know, you can do this to speed up your your metabolism, or you can do that to influence your metabolic Mm. rate, you know, is that good for our... for our thyroid or is that not good for our thyroid? So I think it's important to differentiate. Everyone has a basal metabolic rate that's genetically determined. And that's why some people can eat as much as they want and keep the weight off. And some oh, people, people I hate, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and some people, you know, you have a carrot and you seem to gain three kilograms. So that's a basal metabolic rate. And there's very little one can do to adjust that. Exercise can help and diet becomes important over there as well. Most most strategies that people try to employ to enhance or slow down the metabolic rate, whatever it may be, won't actually function the thyroid hormone unless you're taking a medication or a chemical that will interfere with it. And so the most important thing, a good lifestyle is the most important thing in, in balancing metabolic rate and in getting you know weight to stay off or come on whatever a person desires. But uh, to manipulate the thyroid gland, one either needs to take thyroid hormone or other chemicals that would interfere with the thyroid gland. 
friend of mine years ago, um, there was some doctor that was, you know, dishing out these wonder diets. Mm. And uh, she had just moved from the coast to Johannesburg. She said, no, she's going to go to him. And she went to this doctor and he put her on Altroxin. Now, a family member of mine has got an issue with her thyroid, so they t- take Altroxin. Mm. But here's a perfectly healthy person who was taking Altroxin and I was... I mean, she was, she lost a fortune of weight, but she put it back 10 times as soon as she came off the altroxin. Absolutely. And I mean, isn't that, can't something like that actually be life-threatening? It can. You know, one just has to look at the consequences of having an overactive thyroid to see what the problems will be with that. And we know that, for example, patients with an underactive thyroid that we're treating, if we over-treat them, then there are deleterious effects that will occur. Bone health can be problematic. It can cause cardiac arrhythmias. And so it's certainly not a good thing to run someone um, as if they're having an overactive thyroid. I can tell you anecdotally, there's still a number of products out there, over-the-counter preparations for weight loss, so-called fat burners, that contain thyroid hormone, and they're not subject to MCC regulation. Why? Um, because they are either uh, naturopathic or they they are Gosh. supplementary. So those kinds of things do not have to go through the rigorous testing that regular pharmaceuticals have to. And so I've had experience in my own practice where a patient took something that uh, was she was told was a fat burner, and she landed up in hospital after collapsing on the bathroom floor because she had an overactive thyroid. She was extremely toxic. And now she's taking something that's going to stimulate it even more. That's it. So she came in and she was very ill. And um, subsequently, she came off that supplement and everything normalized. And so the manufacturers deny that there's anything in there, but there are a few cases on the internet even of the same chemical, the same compound that's doing this thing. So a lot of people will put this into their preparations, their weight loss preparations. We also know that many healthcare workers know the benefits of thyroid hormone, and so they may surreptitiously take the thyroid hormone to lose weight and to keep weight off. And uh, it's only once it becomes a problem with bone health, with the heart, or some other things that they actually realize the, uh, the negative they've done to themselves. And that's not as reversible. I imagine. Well, it depends. If if someone's got severe osteoporosis because of that, then it's a problem. It's yeah, you know, it's likely irreversible. Gosh, that's scary, hey? Don't yeah. mess around in the medicine cabinet. No. Just loss it alone. All right. So if you've got any questions, any comments that you'd like to make, uh, you know, we've got the top level expert here in studio. He's an endocrinologist. His name's Dr. Brad Merwitz. Yeah, he practices at Netcare, Mill Park and Park Lane Hospitals, then uh, why not send us a message? Send us your questions, send us your comments on 34519, that's the SMS line. Alternatively, you can do so on 062-148-2374. That's the WhatsApp number, and that's absolutely free if you've got Wi-Fi. Isn't that nice? You can send us voice notes if you like, and uh, you can do that from anywhere in the world. So the WhatsApp number, one more time, 0621482374. Let's just talk about the thyroid. Mm. Do we have statistics on how many people in South Africa, you know, how prevalent uh, thyroid problems are? Statistics are difficult in South Africa just because the reporting uh, uh, networks are not as well established as they should be. We know that thyroid disorders are probably behind diabetes, the commonest endocrine um, abnormality in the population at the time. And anecdotally, and just from the numbers I'd seen in the in the state sector as well as in the private sector, it's an extremely common problem, thyroid disorder, in terms of both over- and underactive um, abnormalities. And so I can't give you exact numbers. How overactive is overactive and how underactive is underactive? What are the different symptoms? Overactive thyroid, um, the commonest condition we see in South Africa is something called Graves' disease, which sounds worse than it really is. It was named after a physician, Robert Graves. 
Um, and that's due to an autoimmune condition that stimulates the thyroid gland. And so everything revs up, as it were, in the body. So the commonest symptoms would be weight loss, anxiety, tremors, heat intolerance, an increase in bowel habits. Women may suffer menstrual irregularities. Um, the, one of the, the commonest things is agitation. Sometimes a spouse will come in and say, my husband or wife is becoming unmanageable. They are on a short Highly trigger. Strong. Very much so. And uh, those are the commonest complaints. Those are the most um, uh, extreme uh, examples of them. Sometimes people will have the opposite. A minority of patients will actually have weight gain and fatigue. Uh, with an overactive thyroid. And we know in the elderly, they may not exhibit all these signs and symptoms. But the average person will come in with at least one or two of these. And often the diagnosis is pretty straightforward to make. In in Graves' disease, there may also be eye involvement. So people may notice that their eyes are popping out a little bit more. Bulgy. That's right. Uh, proptosis or exophthalmos, as we call it. They may have a, a sense of sand or grit in their eye that doesn't they can't get rid of. Um, and then it can, in extreme circumstances, can go all the way to vision-threatening eye disease. And at that stage, they really need referral to an ophthalmologist in conjunction with the endocrinologist to control their thyroid disorder. Wow, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, so let's go through those uh, symptoms again, because every time we do a medical show, by the end of the show, I'm convinced I have it. Right. Okay, the, the Alzheimer show was a little bit uh, too much, though. Okay, so you said... Uh, so um, weight loss, yeah, anxiety, agitation, tremor. Oh, so in, it would actually shake. If people shake, yeah. Yeah, and this can be any age. Yeah, so it's it's you know um, it's more common amongst females than males, but it it goes the whole spectrum of ages. So <laughs> the literature would say middle-aged women, but you know it can come at any age, generally from late adolescence through all the way into to those more advanced in age, over sixty-five and above. And is there a genetic link? There is an association. So patients that have first-degree relatives that have a thyroid disorder are more likely themselves to have it. It's not in terms of Mendelian inheritance. So it's not we don't say it's on this chromosome or that chromosome. It's something we call HLA-associated. And so it's not a given that someone will have it if they've had a parent with thyroid disease, but it's far more likely. Okay. Um, so that's Graves' disease, yes. and that's overactive. Correct. So if you've got an overactive thyroid, then you have this immune this autoimmune disease called Graves' disease. Well, is this that is one of the causes. It's probably the commonest cause that we see. There are other causes of overactive thyroid disease. People can get a benign tumor in their thyroid that's it's not malignant, but it produces thyroid hormone. You can get something called a toxic multinodular goiter. These are people that may have giant thyroid glands sitting in their neck, and these overproduce. I thought goiter was with people who lacked iodine. Um, it can be. So the, the commonest thing is that patients or people that live in low iodine areas, iron deficient iodine deficient areas may have these big thyroids. Usually their thyroids still function at a normal level and may be underactive. But there is a condition where people get multiple nodules and many of these nodules may become uh, self-sustaining and they just secrete irrespective of what the, the, the other stimulatory, the pituitary hormone TSH. Can we live without a, a thyroid? It would be a pretty miserable existence without would a thyroid. It? And in extreme circumstances, uh, there is a condition called myxedema coma where patients may, it's, it may be life-threatening. So anyone who has had a thyroidectomy, be it surgical or medical, they don't have any uh, thyroid glands producing thyroid hormone, then they need to be on supplementation. Like altroxin? Like altroxin, yeah. Levothyroxine. Okay. So that's overactive. Let's talk about underactive. What are the signs of underactive? So the exact opposite of overactive. So weight, it'd be weight gain. Weight gain, cold intolerance. 
One of the commonest symptoms is what we call a cognitive fog. People say, my mind just isn't as clear as it used to be. See, I told you, I, I told you, I've got all of these symptoms. Constipation, <laughs> you know, and the problem is with an underactive thyroid is that the symptoms are so nonspecific that most of us will have about three or four of them just day to day. And so it can be very difficult to discern, is this a thyroid problem, is it not? And so it may mean that one has to have a test, a simple blood test, just to, to elicit if there's a thyroid problem or not. The other issue is when it comes to therapy, we can, get ther- we can give a patient therapy, we can treat to target. We have certain targets we use within the blood work, and people may still be symptomatic. And it may not be related to the thyroid, but rather life in general. So the problem, the symptoms of underactive thyroid are very nonspecific. Um, other ones are constipation. Women may also have uh, more frequent cycling in terms of their menses and, um, you know, slowing of the heart rate. In extreme circumstances, they may get hypothermia, but that's really in the, in the emergency uh, situation. They get hypothermia in this uh, myxedema coma, as, as I thinking, mentioned. thinking somebody who's got all of these, okay, um, I mean, it would be quite natural to put on some weight. You mm. want to go to the gym. You want to work out. But at the same time, your metabolism is slowing down and mm. slowing down. I mean, that could be just a terrible, terrible combination. Indeed. And that's why the weight gain may be quite profound in many patients with an underactive thyroid. It's also one of the reasons many people, when they're gaining weight, think it's a thyroid problem because it's very easily treatable. Unfortunately, the majority of cases of weight gain are not related to the endocrine no, system. That cake problem. That's it, yeah. yeah. Okay. As, as a professor of mine said, the only gland that's malfunctioning is the salivary gland. <laughs> that's excellent. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. My guest in studio is endocrinologist uh, Dr. Brad Merwitz. If you've got any questions for him, he is the top-level expert. Where else are you going to ask your questions? But right here on FM, how do you ask your question? Well, you can uh, text 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. Alternatively, you can WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. We're talking about the thyroid gland, the endocrine system, and adrenal fatigue. Does it actually exist? Because today every second person seems to have it. We're going to be getting to that after this. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care. My name's Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me for this Discam Medical Monday program. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Brad Merwitz. We're talking endocrinology. We're talking the endocrine system. Uh, if you missed out on the beginning, what the endocrine system is, it's all the different glands and hormones throughout your body that work together. Um, Brad actually gave a, an amazing uh analogy of it being like an orchestra and your conductor is your little pituitary gland that sits in between your eyes in the middle of your brain it's the size of a pea and that controls your uh, your thyroid which controls all the other glands in your body isn't that an amazing amazing system you know the more i learn about the human body the more awed i am about what an incredible machine it really is if you've got any questions, perhaps you've got questions about your thyroid, perhaps you've got questions about adrenal fatigue, we're going to be certainly talking about that. Can we talk a little bit about the pituitary? Sure. So tell us about the pituitary. I mean, it's this tiny little pea shape. Can you live without a pituitary gland? Um Again, a pretty miserable existence without a pituitary gland. In fact, most people with severe pituitary disease uh, will not be sustained long term. There are a few cases. Again, anecdotally, I've had one patient who she lived in rural KwaZulu-Natal. And after the birth of her child, the community noticed that she wasn't behaving in the same way. And they basically stuck her in a hut and left her for 20 years until a niece of hers 
a niece of hers was a student up here and she thought, no, something's wrong with auntie. And she brought her up to Johannesburg and she'd had an obstetric complication that resulted in something we call Sheehan syndrome and an underfunctioning pituitary. And she got treatment and she perked right up and she managed to live a normal existence thereafter. So it is possible to live without a pituitary, but it's not a happy existence. The pituitary is divided into two parts. What Especially we call, if you're in the rural areas. Particularly there. Yeah. The pituitary is divided into two parts, the anterior and the posterior pituitary. Um, the posterior pituitary has direct nerve communications, basically grows as an outgrowth of nerves from the hypothalamus and higher areas in the brain. And that secretes two hormones. Oxytocin is one of them. ADH is another one, antidiuretic hormone, vasopressin. And then the anterior pituitary is really the one that's involved in regulating the other glands. Um, it grows as an upgrowth from uh, the nose, basically, uh, in, in, in utero when a baby's developing. And it's connected to the hypothalamus through something called the pituitary stalk. And the hypothalamus then gives an output of other hormones and nerve impulses to the anterior pituitary, which will then result in the release of a number of different hormones, um, those hormones being thyroid-stimulating hormone, um, ACTH, adrenocorticotropin, Ah, it's okay. ACTH, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, growth hormone, prolactin. So a number of different hormones which are controlled uh, or which control the other glands in the body. And that's all in response to various stimuli, but be both internal. So what's your internal environment? What's necessary for growth and development at that time? LH and FSH, which control pu uh, puberty and control sexual function, also secreted by the pituitary gland. So I'm all just thinking about, as, as you're describing this, the changes in a, in a woman's body during pregnancy must be absolutely massive. I mean, well, you don't, I don't, I don't think about these things. In fact, you one know, doesn't, it's one, just incredible. One doesn't even have to look at pregnancy. The normal state monthly cycling for a woman, when you look at the hormonal changes that occur on a monthly basis, it's, it's mind boggling really. And it's very difficult to actually learn what goes on, even for an endocrinologist. But, uh, they are very, very intricate. And so it's easy to see how disease can occur. Um, a friend of mine once said, he's a nephrologist, he once said, he understands disease because there's so much that can go wrong in the body. What's amazing is when things don't go wrong and how perfectly the body can function then. And particularly when it comes to pituitary d uh, disease. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Okay, so uh, let's get back to the pituitary gland. So the pituitary secretes all these little hormones yeah. and controls the thyroid. W one of the hormones controls the thyroid. So the oh, and, the other, and the others will control the other, other glands. Okay. So ACTH goes to the adrenal glands. Growth hormone goes to the liver to make something called IGF-1. TSH goes to the thyroid. Growth hormone's good, right? Growth hormone's good. Not in excess. Nothing's good in excess, but uh, the right amount is good. Um, LH, FSH go to ovaries in women and testes in men uh, to stimulate the, the production of either testosterone or estrogen, uh, depending on the, on the person. So uh, all, the, all the various... Organs, uh, endocrine organs, are affected by pituitary activity and pituitary disease. What are the things that can go wrong with the with the pituitary? Although they seem a lot rarer than um, thyroid right. issues. They are. They are rarer. Um, and like anything, we divide it up into congenitals. So those abnormalities that are present at birth and acquired. And within those acquired conditions, there can be primary problems. So diseases that affect primarily the pituitary gland, or secondary, something that occurs that then affects the pituitary as a knock-on effect. And so the commonest thing we see with pituitary glands, you can get benign tumors in the pituitary gland. Um, this is what would present to an adult endocrinologist. So an adenoma. Adenoma, that's correct. So you can get pituitary adenomas. 
which uh, may be completely inconsequential or may be quite consequential depending on how, the size and if it secretes. Obviously, if the adenoma secretes something, one would then see the, the sequelae of, a, of over-secretion of an excess of that particular hormone. A common thing is a prolactinoma, something that secretes prolactin, which um, in women may just result in some menstrual irregularities. In men, it can result in sexual dysfunction, in gynecomastia, so male breast tissue growth, Women may have galactaria, which is secretion, looks like milk coming out of the breast. Uh, and then it can be problematic depending on the tumor size. And that's all from the pituitary adenoma. Correct. Because there is a question that's come through. Uh, thanks, Danny. says, good morning. My daughter has a pituitary adenoma but, or noma. Uh, benign, what actually is it? And what's the cause? Okay, so the cause, I think that that's... Yeah. So they're benign growths of any of the cell lines within the pituitary. And depending on the size and depending on the function, it may have problems or it may be completely a benign thing that you don't have to worry about. The important thing is for the endocrinologist or the physician, who, uh, pediatrician, whoever's managing the patient, to do the hormonal profile to make sure that this is not secreting in excess or that there's a deficiency. If there are, if there is a deficiency, obviously, to correct that. And if not, it may just require some follow-up. Many of the tumors are non-secretory, and the major problem with them is as a result of their size. Obviously, it's a very confined space in the skull, and so as these tumors grow... Well, and some people, you know, might not be such a confined (laughs) space. Yeah. As the tumor grows, it may compress, it may cause headaches, it may cause nausea, it may impact on the vision because some of the, the, the nerves from the eyes straddle the the pituitary gland on top and so as it grows it can impinge on those nerves the optic chiasm we call it so it's just something that needs work up if these tumors are small and they are not having an effect and it might just be that you need to have routine mris to follow up and make sure that the size is not increasing there are medications that are available to treat some of the disorders some adenomas are responsive to some therapies others may require surgery so, um, Danny has said that it's it's her daughter. Mm. So, say it's a it's a child mm. who's been discovered, you know, it's been discovered or diagnosed um, with this pituitary adenoma. How often should that be monitored? So, or even in a teenager, I suppose. So, again, the first thing to do is see: is it secreting? Is it not secreting? Okay. Okay. If it's not secreting, then it will come down to the mass effect. We call it: is this is this tumor really big and it's causing other problems? If it is, it's going to need some form of intervention, be it medical or surgical. Usually, surgical when it's non-secretory. So, how do they do surgery? I mean, you're talking about something that's P-shaped or P-size. Yeah. Between your eyes, in the middle of your brain? There's two main ways to do the surgery. A, a neurosurgeon is the one that would do the surgery. The, the one we prefer is something called transphenoidal surgery, where they make an incision under your top lip, um, and then an ENT comes and they go through the sphenoid bone, which is one of the sinuses, which sits directly below the pituitary gland, and then the neurosurgeon will go in with the microscope and can carve out the tumor. So incredible. It, it's amazing surgery, and so there's no external scarring or anything like that. With some tumors, when they're really large and they can't be gotten to that way, or if they are impinging on other structures, then you would need the transcranial approach, which obviously involves making an incision across the top of the skull, taking out a section of the skull and going in on top. Wow. And that's how they used to do it. Sometimes well, they still sometimes have to do depending it. Depending on what it is. Yeah. Um, thanks, Bev. Bev wants to know, can Graves' disease spontaneously disappear without medication? That's a great question. So there are some cases where that can happen, and what may often happen is that it goes on to become a burnt-out thyroid, so they may become underactive. Uh, it's, it's not the common way that it remits spontaneously. It may be with therapy that we can get a remission, and about the literature suggests that about 60% of people treated with a particular medication 
will go on to maintain a youth thyroid state, a normal thyroid function. So we know with medication there is that opportunity. Um, we can't predict. There are some parameters in which we can say this patient is more likely to get a remission and this one is not. But it's very difficult to predict in everyone how they'll how their disease proce- uh, progress will go. Um, it's 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 let's say the minority of patients that will get a spontaneous remission. And in fact, if I think anecdotally, I can't think of many patients that have had a spontaneous remission. You know, a lot of these, we keep hearing that it's about our lifestyle, it's about our lifestyle. In fact, most diseases we keep hearing, is it's about our lifestyle. Mm. You're either getting too much of something or you're getting too little of something. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I really appreciate Bev's, Bev's question because, you know, especially with a certain, I think it's a like certain type 2 diabetes, mm. when you change your lifestyle, that diabetes can actually disappear. Definitely. So it's a good question, Bev. And it's also just important to point out for Bev's question, there are certain thyroid conditions, what we call subacute thyroiditis, where an infection in the thyroid gland may result in an overactive thyroid. And that is a self-limiting thing, usually over six months to a year. Um, Some people it's it's slightly shorter, some people maybe a little bit longer. And so what happens is there's an infection there, there's inflammation, which which results in release of preformed thyroid hormone. And so a patient may become thyrotoxic. And then what happens is as the disease starts remitting, they may go through a period where it becomes underactive and then returns to normal. And so in many cases may be thought of being Graves' disease where it's actually subacute thyroiditis. And we've got ways of testing for which one it's more likely to be. You can do a certain blood test or you can do a radioiodine uptake scan, and that will give us information about the, the cause of the condition. Okay, very important. So mm-hmm. all lies in the diagnosis. Yes. All right. Uh, Maxine wants to know what is a parathyroid? The parathyroid gland is one of four, or there are four small glands, usually four, that sit on the, the top, what we call the poles of the thyroid. So there's one on each side on the so top. If, if and the thyroid's a butterfly shape. Right. So you've got the body in the middle. And the and wings. And then you've got the wings. So on the top of the wings and the bottom of the wings, there'll okay. be these small glands over there. And the parathyroid glands are involved in calcium metabolism. They're very important organs. They're very small organs, very difficult to actually see. One needs an experienced surgeon to actually uh, feel for a parathyroid gland if they're going for surgery, particularly thyroid or parathyroid, because you don't want to take out a thyroid gland and take the parathyroids with them. And they're very important in terms of calcium metabolism in the body. And that calcium metabolism has a knock-on effect to bone health and a number of other organ uh, functions that may be uh, important or that may be affected by an excess or a deficiency of parathyroid hormone. I'm hearing more and more, it's so interesting, um, I'm hearing more and more people saying that they're having issues with parathyroid. Mm. Is it because they're being di- better diagnosed, or do you think that it's on the increase? The literature seems to suggest that it's a diagnostic thing. Our assays for parathyroid hormone are becoming more and more accurate. So previously, uh, and for calcium and vitamin D, so previously one may not have had the most uh, sensitive assays, and so parathyroid disease could slip through the, the cracks, whereas now we've got very sensitive assays. And I think there's a lot more awareness around the importance of calcium and vitamin D being such a topical thing at the moment. And it's so good for you. It is, and yeah. it's so topical now that we're testing more and more vitamin D and linked very closely to vitamin D levels will be parathyroid and calcium. So I think our awareness and our diagnostic abilities are improving at the moment. Does something happen in a woman's body um, at menopause with the parathyroid that would influence, you know, perhaps she's got calcium deficiency or something like that? Or is it not linked at all? It's not linked. Um, Parathyroid hormone doesn't seem to be one of those endocrine uh, organs that's affected by menopause. Uh, the importance of it is that women, we know when they go through menopause and the estrogen levels drop, obviously their bone health suffers. And so it becomes more and more important for women in the menopausal 
period to ensure that they have good vitamin D levels, which goes some way to sustaining bone density, and obviously to intervene if we see there's a deficiency and supplement the vitamin D. All right. Uh, Danny says, thank you so much. Um, she says she used to have excessive sweating. Now, no more headaches. With the, This was with the pituitary adenoma. Oh, uh, okay. That's so depend is, what this is the mommy who's, who's uh, telling us okay. about her daughter. So uh, you're absolutely welcome. If you've got any questions about hormones, about glands, about thyroids, pituitaries, about pancreas, about anything you like, that has to do with the endocrine system, then these are the numbers you need to know to get your questions and your comments through. 34519, that's the uh, SMS line, that's the text line. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. Alternatively, you can WhatsApp on 062-148-2374, and that's free if you've got Wi-Fi. So just do it. Do it. My guest is Dr. Brad Merwitz. He's an endocrinologist. He's got practices at Netcare, Mill Park, and Park Lane hospitals. So, uh, yeah, get your questions through. It's absolutely fascinating when you look at the whole body system and how everything works with everything else. It's like the ultimate, you know, you know, the precision when you look at the synchronized swimming, or when you look at those marching bands, and they intersect. Everything has to work exactly. In order, it's it's just incredible. I was thinking it's like a microcosm of society, of a functioning society. Every person has to have a different a different role, but something that works in sync with the rest of the society at large to function properly. And that's what the endocrine system is. Like an orchestra. That's it. <laughs> What's the most fascinating thing that you've learned about the endocrine system? And I'm sure that there's thousands of things that you know about it. But what for you stands out? Is there something that stands out that makes you just wow? I think. One of the, the major things for me is the link between the mind and the body. I and mean, we can see how a deleterious lifestyle, um, stressful environment, stressful life, all these kinds of things can impact on your endocrine system. That's not to say that it will be a lasting effect, that it results in lasting disease. But we know that the endocrine system is linked to so much. And they've demonstrated patients that are recently bereaved of loved ones have an increased incidence of illness. And it may be that's because of um, immune function. And a lot of that is regulated by the endocrine system, by cortisol levels. And just to see the impact of negative lifestyles, negative outlooks on life, negative... Um, Everything suppressed. That's it. Yeah. Pessimistic people get sick more frequently. You know, and we see that with the endocrine system as well. And for me, just to see the importance of lifestyle, yeah. that's been an eye-opening in the last few years for me. Have you ever read uh, Deepak Chopra? I've not. Okay, so he's a he's an Ayurvedic doctor, mm. um, but he t- he also takes a lot of the homeopathy and he takes the traditional um, medicine. And he was questioning. He's he's actually documented this in a book called. It'll come to me in a little while. But it's it's really interesting. And he he's wondering, you know, our eyes regenerate themselves every twenty eight days, or is it our skin? I think I, I think skin. our eyes is every ten days and our skin is every twenty eight days, whatever it is. So if you've got a scar somewhere on your skin, technically you should not have that scar because you've just ge- regenerated your whole skin every twenty eight days and you shouldn't have wrinkles and you shouldn't have all of these different things. And he goes into it, um, it's called Quantum Health. That's the okay. name of the book. And he goes into it and he says each cell has an intelligence and each cell in our body actually has a memory. When you feel sad, even 
that every cell in your body feels sad. And that actually made a lot of sense to me, the way that he explained it. And then he goes into explaining how the, the cell memory passes on the memory to the next cell, which is how tumors grow, which is how well, I mean, when things go wrong, that's how they go wrong. We now have a concept now called epigenetics, mm. you know, which basically says that you've got your genes, your predetermined genes, but which genes switch on and switch off is, are dictate, that, that's dictated by your life experiences, exposures that happen throughout life. Incredible. And it doesn't mean you need a mutation. So Darwinian genetics, Darwinian inheritance says, no, you have to have a genetic mutation for a change to occur. Epigenetics tells us you don't have to have a mutation. Your negative exposure can result in a different gene being activated, which will then impact on cellular function and can result in the next generation being affected. Where we see this is maternal nutrition and the effect on the developing fetus. And in fact, we know poor maternal nutrition during pregnancy, if she's carrying a baby girl, that girl already has her ovaries and her oocytes. Those oocytes will be affected by maternal nutrition through epigenetic changes. And so you get what's called transgenerational impact. Okay, so very, very simply, oh, is the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to understand this as Blondie over here. Okay. Okay, so when the temperature gets hotter, okay, crocodile eggs change their gender. Right. You have more females being born when it's hotter. Okay, the same thing happens with turtles and a whole lot of other reptiles. Is that the sort of mutation that you're talking about? Well, no. That things, or not mutation, but the changes. It wouldn't be something as extreme as gender. Yeah. But, but you can get... The so environmental factors will affect that development. Right. So, for example, a mother with poor nutrition during pregnancy might mean that the cert- certain genes are activated in her fetus or in the the oocyte of the fetus, that would then result in calorie storing, which means that that child may be predisposed towards obesity and towards type 2 diabetes because of the activation of certain genes that under normal circumstances would be suppressed. And so that's what we mean by the environment having an impact on genetic information. It just means certain genes that are there are either going to be um, activated or suppressed depending on what the exposure is. It's really, it's remarkable. It is. is there a connection between the amount of weight gain that mommies go through in pregnancy and how um, how overweight that adult will, the baby will be when they're adults? Yeah, studies have demonstrated that both women that have excess weight gain and insufficient weight gain have children predisposed to type 2 diabetes and obesity. Where, where we saw this on one hand was in Holocaust survivors. So women that fell pregnant during during World War II in the camps, their children had an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, and they were undernourished mothers. Similarly, we know that obese mothers also have children that are at increased risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity. Now, to what extent or what the, the ideal weight gain is, that will vary person to person. So in extremes, it's easy to say, yes, this woman is an extremely overweight woman or a malnourished woman that's underweight. But there seems to be a lot of room, a lot of wiggle room, as it were, as well. So we can't define definitively and say, uh, you've gained 0.2 kilograms more than you should have, therefore your baby will become overweight and diabetic. So interesting, yeah. especially when you start doing these these multi-generational studies to see how things change. And uh, what I love what you said about uh, you know, um, how dynamic we are in terms of how our hormones react to environmental stimuli, and that can be passed on to the next generation. Mm. It just shows you that uh, in terms of Darwinism, we're a lot more dynamic than, than they ever anticipated. Definitely. 
And that's why you see a lot of evolutionary biologists are having to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get out of the the binds that they put themselves into yeah, because well, of still more don't more explain learning. how they how feather has mutated. You know, yeah. come on. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we're not even no. going there. <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about something that seems to. Oh, okay. Another message has come through. Um, what's your feeling about homeopathic medications for thyroid conditions? It's a very difficult and sensitive subject. Um, whenever one speaks too strongly for or against homeopathy, one risks alienating a large percentage of the population. The, the, the important thing to do is, is that if there is a diagnosed a thyroid issue, the treatment one is taking needs to have some amount of thyroid hormone in it. So, Which homeopathic won't have. It probably won't have. The other problem with naturopathic things is that, again, it's not subject to MCC approval. So it becomes very difficult to know how much of the claimed chemical is in there. And so there are some preparations. You know, we use levothyroxine, which is uh, thyroid replacement, and we've got something called um, tertroxin, which is the trade name for T3-activated thyroid hormone. We would use those two medications. There are some other therapies, things like desiccated pig thyroid extract or sheep thyroid extract, which contain both T4 and T3, but the, the concentrations and the quantities become difficult to know because it's not done under fixed laboratory settings. So anytime someone's going down a therapeutic route that is off mainstream, one needs to just be cautious and be sure that one knows how reliable the company is that's manufacturing that that compound and that they're getting a reliable amount of that compound. All right. So you've raised a, something here that's kind of got my alarm bells going, and that is taking hormones from other species. Mm. You know, is that is that common practice? It's less common now. You know, traditionally that's what used to be used before we could com- we could synthesize human hormones in a laboratory through a competent technology. So that's why insulins used to be either porcine or bovine, and thyroid extracts were originally from sheep and the like. So they've traditionally been used. They're not used so much now because they may elicit immune responses. It becomes a bit difficult to know how active they are, uh, and for the exact reasons that I've mentioned. But some people do still prefer to use these extracts for a whole host of reasons. And the important thing to note is that within traditional, well, I say traditional, but within mainstream medicine that we practice, there are a number of societies and guidelines that put out recommendations about the therapy to use. And these are not done to buffer the bottom line of big pharma. Well, it's because we know predictably what a patient will be getting and how it's going to react in that patient, whereas something like desiccated thyroid extract becomes far more unpredictable, and so it's not recommended to use that kind of therapy. All right. Um, Let's talk about animal hormones as well. There is a high-energy drink, okay? Okay. And one of – it was actually developed by the United States military for men in battle. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the ingredients is something called taurine, which is, I think it's a bull hormone that they use in, in bulls, or it comes from bulls. My understanding is it's an amino acid. Oh. Um, okay, well, you're the doctor, so. I stand to be corrected on that, though. Uh, you know, any time a person is putting something into their body that's of dubious repute, you know, I would be reluctant to recommend that as a first-line therapy. Often, just as an example... You know, obviously diabetes is a large thing with which I deal. And so people always ask me about cold drinks. And I say to them, if I was to break down that cold drink into its constituent ingredients, you would not put that into your body. You wouldn't drink the nine 
teaspoons of sugar that's in the Fanta grape. And you wouldn't drink all those chemicals and put that into your body when it's sitting in front of you. But put it together into a thick, black, delicious liquid and you'll put it into your body. Nothing's changed in that, but it still doesn't make sense to take it, right? What about cake? I mean, I'm just thinking about cake. You know, the flour and the eggs. And the <laughs> Listen, in excess, okay. <laughs> but the point is, you know, you're going to put something into your body like taurine. Again, you know, there's very limited data as to whether taurine actually does what it's purported to do. Yeah. You know, these energy drinks, most of them give you energy because there's caffeine and there's sugar. Anything else that they're putting into it is of very limited uh, has a very limited data set behind it to suggest that it actually does anything. And you'll often see Girana and all these kinds of other natural things in it. And uh, when you look at the science behind it, there's, there's not much to support it. That's the truth. And what science there may be is usually in laboratory settings or it's uh, in preclinical studies or animal models. And you can't always extrapolate that to the human body, what's going to happen when you put it into a living person. And so people want to take these things, provided it's not going to do too much harm, Okay, but, you know, I wouldn't really recommend it. Don't have it for breakfast. Exactly. In the not-too-distant past, the catchphrase was gluten intolerance, right, where some people were genuinely diagnosed with gluten intolerance, and then it seemed like everybody else was self-diagnosing, either that or Dr. Google right. was self was diagnosing the entire South African, in fact, Glen Hazel population, the entire Glen Hazel population was diagnosed with gluten intolerance. And uh, those that weren't were already on banting. Right. Right. Now it seems to be adrenal fatigue. Right. So many people saying that they've been, um, you know, they've been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. What is adrenal fatigue? Because I might have it. That's why I'm asking. So you're quite right. <laughs> and Craig as well. Hey, Craig. You might also have adrenal fatigue, yeah. Adrenal fatigue is, is very topical. It's a big buzzword at the moment. And, and I'm going to risk angering many people out there. But I'm going to so come out and say this. calming music right. just now. The Endocrine Society, which is a grouping of a number of top endocrinologists worldwide, it's the largest umbrella body for endocrinologists in the world, has come out categorically and said there is no such thing as adrenal fatigue. Okay. Who said this? I'm making a note so I can write a letter. The Endocrine Society. Okay. Please direct all communication to them. <laughs> and the reason they've done this is because there's been a meta-analysis that have been done. They've done studies looking at the literature and looking if there's any evidence of such a thing as adrenal fatigue. We know that there's such a thing as adrenal insufficiency or adrenal failure where the adrenal glands do not work. And that has a number of causes. Either there's an autoimmune condition that results in destruction of the adrenal glands, or there's an infection, or there's hemorrhage, or the pituitary is not working, something that results in the adrenals not working. The theory behind adrenal fatigue is that people lead very stressful lifestyles. And over a long period of time, the adrenals become fatigued, as it were, and can no longer produce enough cortisol to sustain normal function. So that's a theory. It was a, a term coined by a chiropractor, a naturopath, so not someone from mainstream medicine, and um, with very little evidence. It's predominantly a diagnosis based upon symptoms. The problem is, if you were to put 10 people in a room, eight of them would be fatigued, right? I've got small children, I'm tired all the time, but I don't have adrenal fatigue. So it's a very difficult diagnosis to actually prove. The blood tests um, are not diagnostic, Many of the assays that are used are not validated in laboratories according to standard norms. And so it becomes a, um, 
a very easy thing to say, oh, no, you're tired, you've got adrenal fatigue. What many mainstream people do is they'll look at the reference ranges at regular laboratories, your AMPATs, your Lancets, etc., and if they see that it's on the slightly lower limit of normal for that patient, they'll say, oh, well, this is a good indicator that you may have adrenal fatigue. Oftentimes, people have come to me with a diagnosis of adrenal fatigue, and when we do the cortisol levels, they're actually high, which goes against what the diagnosis says. And the problem is, is that people have something wrong with them. They can feel that there's something not right. And there, in fact, may be something not right. Usually it's, re- result, it's related to lifestyle. And that's why you'll see, if you go online and you read about adrenal fatigue, the majority of therapy involves lifestyle changes, stopping smoking, exercising more, healthy diets. And you can call that diet whatever you want to, paleo banting, whatever name you want to attach to it, but a healthy diet. And the truth is that changing your lifestyle will have a positive impact in most people. Then they say, and not oh, just on your on your adrenal glands, it'll correct in general in everything, yeah, in everything, and it'll also improve your mood. You know, often these people may have some uh, coexisting depression, or not overt major depressive disorder, but the blues or some element of depression and a negative learned response to life circumstances that impacts on them. Then there are therapeutic interventions that may involve medications, DHEAS, which is uh, the most abundant male hormone produced by the adrenal gland, and in women it forms a large part of the, the precursors for testosterone, as well as cortisol. And uh, so some people will be on these supplements as well. Now, anecdotally, I've got, I know people that are endocrinologists that will treat people for adrenal fatigue once they've excluded everything else, okay? And anecdotally, many people feel better on the treatment. So it becomes very difficult to say, oh, no, you don't have a condition because, behold, the, the tablets are working. How much of that is placebo and how much of that is, in fact, doing something that the patient is deficient in is difficult to know. Remember, the placebo effect is beyond just taking a tablet. There's a whole ritual that goes with getting a medication. For example, they've demonstrated um, a saline injection has greater pain benefit than a sugar tablet, even though neither of them are doing anything. An injection is, works better. It's all power of the mind. That's it. And we can tap into that, but we don't. Exactly. And so there are doctors in town who, you know, a large part of what they do is managing adrenal fatigue. And most of the patients that are managed with adrenal fatigue don't have a sustained response to the therapy. So it's... So it'll work for a while and then... If at all, yeah. Or it'll just alleviate things slightly, somewhat. And so it becomes a very difficult diagnosis. And all the the websites online, those are all through naturopathic, homeopathic, chiropractic um, forums, which means that it's not mainstream medicine. And I'm not, I'm not saying don't pursue those avenues, but I'm just saying as far as mainstream medicine is concerned, this is a diagnosis that doesn't necessarily carry much weight. And so one needs to be very careful when taking these therapeutic interventions because taking excess cortisol when you don't need it will make a person sick. And taking excess DHEAS in a woman that doesn't need it may result in some virilization and masculinization. So it needs to be done very carefully. There's no doubt some people do benefit from these it can't necessarily, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily imply that it's from adrenal fatigue. All right. Okay. So first things, yeah. rule out, as, as what it. I'm hearing, rule out anything else. That's that correct. Could be. That's correct. And oftentimes, you know, we can stimulate the adrenal glands using uh, pharmaceutical agents. And that will tell us, is this patient's adrenal gland functioning properly? If it's not, then they have adrenal failure. And then they need a whole different therapeutic intervention. Mm. All right, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. But uh, since I've got you here, I'm going to ask you the question. Sure. Johnny Clegg, mm. he was recently, well, recently, 2015, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Okay. Which is why he's doing, he went for a special operation. Apparently, he's, he 
only he falls into only nine percent of uh, people that could have this operation, yeah. um, and then he received like chemo, and then. He got like second. It's it's a whole long story, and it's it's in the public domain. Otherwise, I would never mention it. Um, what do your pancreas do, and why is it so difficult to diagnose? I mean, he he really was diagnosed early, thank mm. God. So you know, the, the pancreas has both endocrine and exocrine function. Mm. The exocrine function is involved in digestion. It secretes a number of enzymes that are involved in breaking down food that we eat, uh, which will allow it to then be absorbed. So. In, to, in order for protein, fats, and sugars to be digested, they need to be broken down into the constituent components. And that's the exocrine function of the pancreas. The endocrine function of the pancreas, uh, there are a number of hormones secreted. The, the two most well-known are insulin, obviously, so a deficiency of which will result in diabetes, and glucagon, which is counter-regulatory to insulin. So it helps to increase your blood glucose, whereas insulin drops your blood glucose. Between the two, they keep you stable. That's it. Right. There are other hormones that are secreted by the pancreas, things like somatostatin and a few others that uh, have various functions throughout the body. Um, the problem with pancreatic cancer is that depending on where the tumor lies and whether or not it secretes, it can often be detected late. So if it's more distal, that means towards the tail of the pancreas, it may present much later because it takes time for mass effect to rear its ugly head. <coughs> Excuse me. Or um, it, it won't have such an impact that it will start resulting in a deficiency of the hormones. Some pancreatic tumors are what we call neuroendocrine tumors. They may produce some hormones, and so one may present with the uh, the symptoms and the signs of an excess of those hormones. But pancreatic cancer generally carries quite a poor prognosis. And so if he's had successful therapy, that's, uh, he's well, very lucky. Well, it hasn't been that successful. Uh, Sorry so, to hear that. Yeah. But, um, but he was, I mean, for two years, and, and that's really, really a long time for somebody to indeed. be able to live with, with pancreatic cancer after diagnosis. Indeed. And it, it is one of those devastating cancers because it's usually detected so late. Yeah. And that's where we wrap up. <laughs> Tell on, us. On a dour note. No, no, no. We're not, we're, not gonna, we're not going to end this on a dour note. Tell us something positive, uplifting about the hormones in our body. I think how, do, how do we better look after our endocrine systems? You know, this it's it comes down to a very simple thing. Be happy. Be happy, <laughs> eat well and exercise. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a pleasure to speak to Dr. Brad Merwitz. Uh, he's an endocrinologist. He practices at Netcare, Millpark and Park Lane Hospitals. Uh we've been talking about thyroid, the endocrine system and adrenal fatigue. And um on that note we do wish Johnny Clegg well. Thank you so much. God bless. We'll see you. Same time, same place next week. Bye. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.